0: Hi everyone, Steph here. I hope that you and your families are staying healthy and safe at home. I'm just dropping in to make a quick disclaimer that this episode was recorded pre-COVID-19, but we really loved our conversation with Elizabeth Hamblett about the transition into college for students with IEPs and wanted to share it with you. So here it is. Enjoy and make sure to check out yourteenmag.com for all our continuing coverage of the COVID-19 epidemic as well as our Parenting in a Pandemic Digital Edition. Thanks, and remember to wash your hands.
1: Welcome to Your Teen with
0: Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens.
1: And today, we're talking about our children. Between us, we have seven kids who are in or gone to college, and we're going to talk a little bit about how their transitions were to that new stage of life. Our guest today is Elizabeth Hamlet, author of From High School to College, Steps to Success for Students with Disabilities. Steph, what do you got to say? I guess I was thinking about their transitions to college. And I think
0: the metaphor for that is how we load the dishwasher. So I was thinking about the fact that I think we have a little bit of role reversal in my house, which I say about a lot of things because Todd's very fastidious. I have never been accused of that. And so he has a very, um, <laughs> he has, well, as we like to say, strong feelings about how the dishwasher should be loaded. So when As he, do I, by the way. I know it's so funny. And Dan doesn't, right?
1: Well, I don't know how he'd describe
0: himself, but there's no evidence of a system. <laughs> <laughs> I also have no evidence of a system. And I, I mean, some of the—I I do think there's lefty-righty stuff because I'm a lefty and Todd's a righty. And so I think the dishes—it's not that I think they should face a certain way. I'm apt to put them in there a certain way. And Todd always thinks I'm putting them in there backwards, which who cares? I guess I don't get that whole thing because I feel like at the end of it all— the dishes are clean. So who cares if the forks are playing with the spoons and the spoons are playing with the knives? Well, and taking it's... them
1: out of the dishwasher is easier when they're set up together. And are they getting clean? And by whose standard? I, well, I guess the segue or the
0: metaphor I was driving at was if I have watched two of my three kids go to college, I have watched all of my kids approach studying and homework and all of those things— And they're all different, and you have a larger sample size than I do. And there are many times where I want to say, I have wanted to say to them, one in particular, like, that seems so haphazard. Like, are you going to get the results you want? And sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't. But I think, you know, it's like, how much do we let them discover those methods for themselves? How much do you coach? How much do you push? You know, it's... I don't know. I think, you know, while they're under our roofs, the time for them to establish those habits or is it they go off to college and they've got to figure it out? I have mixed feelings about it because I do kind of feel like if the dishes, to your point, if the dishes aren't getting clean, then you got to come up with a new system.
1: Or both ways are getting the dishes clean and it's just not your way. So in my eyes, right. I would say that everybody had different approaches to studying And when they went off to college, the glory of it for me was that I didn't have a clue what they were doing. (laughs) So I wasn't worried. I just, and and the problem with my youngest going to college is there's no one else at home keeping me busy. And so I do worry about him, even though I have no more indication to worry about him than (laughs) I did the others. But a full house gives you a lot of distraction that Dan and I don't have right now. Poor Jacob, every time I read a book on anything to do with college, I'm like, you're not doing that, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's like, oh great! Now she's got. Now I've got all the focus on me, and I've left the house. Well, so you know, sometimes we can be criticized for being not involved enough, as right. as the media is reporting about everyone being too involved. I would say that I've been accused by my kids of being not involved enough. Same. Okay, here's a question about college. This one, I can't even believe that people do this. Okay, go Care ahead. Care packages? Do you do right. those? Right.
0: So I would say I have sent. No, I have probably sent one. To each child their freshman year. So I guess I've done two, if you, <laughs> if we're counting. I remember doing one for Zach, and boy, I hope that I'm saying this out loud that I did it for Ethan. Well, it's not going to feel home really and do bad it right now. I feel like I did. No, no, no. I'm remembering. I definitely did.
1: Yeah, no, but that's I, it. It's one it, each year. This is what I say to my kids, and they don't seem to think it's an excuse. That's not my thing. I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like,
0: that is not an excuse. Okay, that is really funny. Wait, Todd has a line. Don't don't be good at something you don't want to
1: do. Well, there you go. I've I so I am very excellent at Todd's theory. <laughs> I am not good at it and I don't want to do it. All right. So up next is our conversation with Elizabeth Hamlet. We can't wait for you to join us. Elizabeth Hamlet is the author from High School to College, Steps to Success for Students with Disabilities. A former high school special education teacher and case manager, Elizabeth has worked at the college level for more than 15 years, reviewing requests for accommodations and providing one-on-one strategy instruction for students with disabilities. Thanks so much for being here with us, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here.
1: So we're going to start with, if you could just tell us a little bit of how you got into the work you do and and maybe a short description of what it is, in fact, you do.
2: Okay, sure. So as you mentioned earlier, I currently work at a university in a disability services office. And my favorite part of that work is working one-on-one with students. Anybody registered with our disability services office can come and see me. I do a lot of work, as you can imagine, with college students on time management, but also reading strategies and writing strategies, organization. And the other part of my job that I generally perform outside of the office is reviewing students' requests for accommodation. As you mentioned also at the start, I began my career in this part of the education field at the high school level, but I was also working part-time at a small college nearby. And that was when I realized that my high school training had not prepared me to talk to students about what happened once they moved to college and how different the system was and the things they had to be prepared to do. Over time, I became really interested in trying to bridge that knowledge gap and communicate, you know, what I knew about the college environment to high school parents and professionals and to students. So that's a great, great
1: segue for us. If you have a Child in high school right now, you're a parent of a teenager with a child who has learning disabilities. What can they do in high
2: school to prepare their kid for college? That's a great question. So I think, you know, the overall theme of anybody, you know, getting ready to leave high school is trying to prepare them for a certain level of independent functioning, whether your kids are going to go to a traditional college environment or, you know, career and technical environment or go straight into work we expect students and and young adults, really, to be able to, you know, do certain things. And so the sort of everyday basics of self-care, you know, being able to cook something basic and, 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 you know, use public transportation, look after your money, those kinds of things. But when we're specifically talking about college, we really want to make sure that students have strategies to work independently on academic tasks. And so, Colleagues of mine who work advising students on, you know, on the college search, things like that, often express their concern to me that some students are getting tutored after school every day just to keep their grades up. Um, you know, to, I guess, theoretically make them good candidates for for selective schools. And their concern is that the students are not learning the strategies to approach their work independently, but instead are just getting, you know, content area tutoring to sort of keep them on top of things and that tutors are sitting them down and saying, well, you know, you need to do this and you need to do that. So I think, you know, whether you're using a tutor or not, whether you are, you know, kind of structuring your students' time, trying to engage students in the process of when they come home from school, what are you going to do first? You know, Engaging them in being thoughtful about their process and their use of time so that when they are on their own, which they really will be at college, they feel you know, confident in their ability to do this for themselves and know what they have to do and what strategies work for them.
1: This is true whether your kid has a disability or learning disability or not, they're going to get to college and they're going to have so much free time. And that, for a lot of kids, is just so overwhelming. So are there specific tips that you can do in high school that help prepare them for navigating their long, like a full semester of nothing and then a massive final (laughs) or that kind of life in college that that they're definitely going to experience?
2: So that absolutely is true. Everybody struggles with time management in college. And on my website, which is www.ld, as in learning disabilities, advisory, A-D-V-I-S-O, ry.com there's a section for college students where i've loaded all of the tools and advice that i give to my own students and there's a time management tool which you know sounds fancy but is literally just a grid many people have their own versions of this and what i do with students is ask them to Start by minimally just putting in their their weekly obligations, the things they do every week. So it's classes and meetings, rehearsals or practices, whatever they have in there. Then start to fill in what time do you really get up, get dressed and get out of your room and then go eat. What, you know, do you meet your friends for meals? And what we do is with the remaining blocks, which are all blank, start to schedule in consistent times every week that they're going to work on a particular classes, readings, or problem sets, or whatever. Because as you said, everybody struggles with time management. And if you're lucky enough to be at college without having to have a job, or if you're not an athlete, you know their schedules tend to be very well structured, then it's very hard to make good use of all of that time. And as you said, to get behind until the paper is due, or the midterm is there and you haven't read you know, the books. So... I encourage them to sort of create a routine that they can follow so that they fall into that. It becomes easy. It takes away the need to constantly make decisions about their do- what they're doing. Some people benefit from meeting a friend at the library and, you know, not sitting with each other talking, but maybe at the opposite ends of the table just to kind of create a sense of accountability. And is
1: that more necessary if your kid has a diagnosis like ADHD? Or is it just universally a a great tool to use?
2: I think, well, certainly it's a tool everybody could use. But for students with ADHD who have trouble certainly, you know, kind of staying on track when they're on their way to the library, there are things that will, you know, divert them. I suggest, for instance, if going back to the dorm after lunch is going to, derail you, don't go don't go back to the dorm. Go straight to the library and have that plan. And, you know, there are different ways of creating accountability. You can use pop up reminders on your phone, you know, to sort of give yourself an outside prompt. I mean, these smartphones really can be a great tool. They're smart, you know, aren't they? <laughs> they're so smart. Well, you know, we, we've stopped referring to PDAs, personal digital assistants, which is what the original BlackBerrys were. But, you know, to try to think of that phone as exactly that, the, the assistant who will prompt them to say, okay, now it's time to go to the library and do the sociology reading."
1: I thought PDA was something else. Yeah,
0: right. Exactly. (laughs) I had the same thought. I think that's dating us a bit. So, Elizabeth, I I love how you spoke about this idea of filling in the calendar, right, so the kid can see what they have and then looking at the other time. What are the other ways you can help them, that we can help them get organized? What are some of the most effective things you see?
2: So, I think starting the semester organized is a really good way to go. So, As I said, starting by sitting down and creating that schedule ahead of time before classes even begin, downloading all of the um, electronic readings into folders. So, you know, creating if everything is digital and in some classes it is, it's just all PDFs, creating online desk folders or if you want them, you know, accessible everywhere, somewhere in your cloud, a folder for each class.
0: Oh, that's so smart. I love that
2: and download each reading and then rename each reading with read by whatever the date of that class is. And, you know, I have a tendency to probably get a little bit more micro than, than some people need to. I would then create a, um, folder that says done so that when I was done reading it, I move it out. And, you know, what's nice about that is then visually you can see all the readings go away Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) or just rename them, you know, with the word done in front. But, you know, I have in my office and you can see it on my Twitter feed. I have the calendar for the entire semester month by month is up on my wall all semester. And as the days go by, we mark them off. And I do that to help give students a sense of time passing. And also how long, the only thing on that calendar are some big important dates and they are highlighted like what's the add drop date? What's the last day to withdraw from a class? When do midterms begin? And so that way they really feel the march. They can see everything, you know, all at once, see the march of time kind of behind them and the approach to these big deadlines. So yesterday I was meeting with some students and we counted it's five weeks till the last day of classes. It makes time a little bit more tangible and concrete when you're looking at it like that because the days can not just go by.
1: Yeah, they sure do. And then you're then you're stuck. Then you're in that tense position where you're so stressed. So parents who have kids with learning disabilities, you know, we hear from our end just how stressful college is lo- looming in the future. It's just, how are my kids' needs going to be met? I'm here to help them out while they're living in my house. Are there any laws protecting
2: kids who go to
1: college with an IEP or a 504 in high school?
2: Absolutely. So, Parents may have heard from others that IDEA, which is the law that provides for an IEP, does not apply at college. And so many people already know that IEPs are not valid there. What I find is a source of confusion is Section 504. Uh, Some students in high school have a 504 plan and people will hear from others, oh, well, colleges have to follow 504 and therefore your kid should get on a 504 plan as a senior because then he can just walk into college and they have to follow it. So without getting too bogged down in details, that's actually not the case, at least that the the plans are valid after high school. Colleges are under subpart E of 504. High schools are under subpart D. The rules are very different. And what it essentially means is that those plans are not legally valid anymore. But before anybody listening to this starts to panic, I do want to say that there are protections at school and there are basic accommodations. But I, I like to just be clear of that Nobody should have the expectation that students are, you know, entitled to the same accommodations in college that they had in high school. Colleges are going to make their own assessment, first of all, about who's eligible. And that won't be an issue for a lot of students. But, you know, every once in a while there may be a student who has an issue with that. And that colleges don't have to provide the same accommodations just because students have the same thing in high school. Colleges will make their own determinations as to what accommodations are appropriate for that student's disability. And also, you know, in some cases, what's appropriate to the program that they're in, uh, to the college's graduation requirements. And that's a whole other discussion about some, some things that might not be considered reasonable at the college level. So Elizabeth, could the reverse
0: be true if your kid didn't have an IEP or 504 in high school, but is struggling in
2: college? So that's a great question. Let me break that into sort of two different discussions. So let me start first with, because this is a question I see a lot. So students who have been homeschooled or students who have attended private schools often don't have an IEP or a 504 plan because either at home, you know, the whole program is there to accommodate them or at the private school, the school is accommodating them without writing a formal plan. So those students will not necessarily be ruled out of having accommodations because of the absence of a plan. When students come to college, they're going to have to submit documentation, which is a fancy word for paperwork showing you're a person with a disability. Now, at a lot of colleges that can take the form and they expect to see testing like for learning disabilities and sometimes even for ADHD. Now, there are all sorts of disabilities too: students with psychological disabilities, students with medical and physical disabilities. The documentation varies from school to school. The best way to find out what the school you're going to attend requires is to just look it up online. It will be there. And then to make sure that you have that. Now, to go back to your original question, if students were not identified with a learning disability before college and now are attending college, you know, I've seen from online discussions that some of my colleagues, you know, if they will do a very structured lengthy interview with that student. And if they decide based on what the student says about their history, they might provide them some accommodations. I don't know that that's frankly all that common, but typically students who've never before been assessed, you know, and again, learning disabilities and ADD are really my bailiwick. Those students would likely have to go get a formal evaluation. The colleges do not have to pay for them. And most of them don't. I am aware that in California, The students attending a community college can have an assessment done. I don't know if it's I can't remember. I apologize or at a a reduced cost. But that's the only state I'm aware of where that is true. And you can't just go show up at the community college. You have to be registered there for that to happen.
1: And what, what does a typical accommodation, are there typical accommodations, but we're talking about this language and I have no idea. What does that look like in college?
2: Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So an accommodation is an important word here because accommodations are meant to accommodate a learning disability when you... Look online at some college disability services sites. You'll see the word modification and the the idea that colleges don't typically offer them. So to, to give you an example, some very common accommodations are extra time to take tests. So if your class gets two hours to take an exam, you might get three hours. You might be able to take that test in a uh, room with fewer distractions. You know, instead of 100 kids in your introduction to sociology class, maybe you're in somebody's office with 10 other students. Permission to record your lectures. Permission to use your laptop if the professor, to take notes if the, la- if the professor doesn't allow laptops. Or to use a laptop to take your exams if you are a student with serious spelling and writing problems. So those are very common accommodations. Modifications, and the the thing that I was going to mention, are things like having to write a five-page paper when everybody else has to write 10, or not having to read all of the books that your classmates have read. Those modifications are not typically provided, but accommodations are. Are
1: there certain disabilities that you would encourage parents to look at colleges that are specialized for those actual disabilities or can most colleges accommodate everything
2: so it's a very individual thing there are two colleges in the whole country that exist just for students with learning disabilities ADHD and students on the spectrum there's Beacon College in Florida and there's Landmark College in Vermont those schools are not going to be the right choice for everybody there are colleges that offer additional services beyond the basic accommodations for a fee. And um, there are lots of lists of those online. And the k Guide to Colleges for Students with Learning, dif- I think it's called Learning Disabilities. It's now in its 14th edition, I think, provides some of those too. But I think... What's really important is assessing a student's level of independence, you know, as I began this conversation by saying. And so I think that, you know, for students who are still reliant on adults for a lot of guidance and direction, Or for students who have just very recently and, you know, at the end of their high school career been diagnosed with a learning disability or ADHD and not had a chance to learn some of those strategies that could be helpful, perhaps attending a college with a fee-for-service program where they're going to get consistent instruction and that kind of stuff could be a good choice. But, you know. Uh, these these sort of two these two parts of our discussion sort of coalesce to me like what can parents do to help and then how do you talk about colleges over the high school you know your student's high school career you want to keep making sure that teachers are teaching them those independent strategies never to just pull away accommodations but to, you know, get them to the point where they can sort of fly on their own so that the range of, th- of schools they can choose from is wider because they can go anywhere that just provides basic accommodations.
1: Okay, let's talk about the college admissions process and what that, how that could look different for a family that has a kid with a learning disability.
2: That's a good question. So I think, you know, in your search, one of the things you do want to assess is what are some basic accommodations that are available? And what is your student looking for? You know, sometimes when parents hear about these schools that offer fee-for-service programs and University of Arizona is one of the best known ones. They have an entire building devoted to this program, but there are other schools too, like University of the Ozarks, they get excited because they think, well, my kid has a learning disability or ADHD, and so he needs to go to this kind of a place. But if the student's not interested in receiving that kind of support, then you know, having that available to them isn't going to make the difference. And you know, you don't send your kid out to the desert if what he really wants to do is, you know, ski and hike in the White Mountains all, all winter. So talking to your kids about what they're looking for. And then, you know, doing your search based on the kind of typical things. And again, on my website, under families and students, you'll see the two things I've written about college searches. One was for understood.org. And then I did sort of a a deeper dive for my own site, getting a sense of what the requirements are, too. And what's interesting about that is it comes back to that conversation we're having about how some of this stuff is really relevant to everybody. So I don't think anybody should be looking at colleges without looking at their graduation requirements. So I have a son who is now in engineering school, and when we were looking at schools for him, he wasn't that interested in liberal arts colleges with an engineering program, and I think part of the appeal of engineering school for him was, oh, you don't have to take all those liberal arts courses that you might have to take if you go to a different kind of school. So when you're looking at colleges, What do they require? Because, you know, first of all, you wanna look at a place that doesn't push you past too much past what interests you. And then also look at the services too. If if you're on campus, see if you can take a few minutes and make an arrangement to meet with somebody with disability services. Again, if your kid is just somebody who's going to take uh, accommodations and and not really wanna have anything to do with the office, that might not matter. But I have interviewed students who have said, I met with the disability services director and either decided to go there based on that conversation or decided not to go there based on that person, you know, what that person said and how I felt about it.
0: In terms of the application process, do you recommend that students share their disability in their application?
2: Well, you know, because I work with students who have already been admitted to college, I just want to be clear, I don't work with the admissions process at all. And that's an important thing for families to know, too, because I think, you know, some stories sort of get passed around. At a lot of colleges, disability services and, and admissions have nothing to do with each other. The reason that's important, too, is if you disclose your disability in any way, in the application, students need to know they will still have to register with us once they enroll at college. Don't assume that the admissions office is going to send that material over to us and that that means you're registered and all ready to go with accommodations. You'll still have to complete that process. So I have interviewed admissions deans and they all had, um, you know, nuanced things to say about that. And I think in a lot of cases, They would say, you know, if there's something you want to tell us about it, if there is a discrepancy between your scores and your grades, that could be your opportunity, you know, to explain it. But how you go about that, you know, should really be based on what the student feels comfortable with. And if the thing that you love most is uh, being a cheerleader, then write your essay about being a cheerleader. And then you can use the anything else we should know about you section to talk about your disability if you choose to. But, you know, I also spoke with college counselors who do advise students, you know, on their way through this process. And they all said the same. You know, they're all sort of saying the similar thing. But what's most important is it should be the student's decision. If a student is strongly opposed to disclosing a disability, then I don't think anybody should, you know, try to argue that, you know, students have to feel comfortable with what they're going to say about themselves. This is their choice.
1: So the whole process of getting our kids into college today involves parents on some level when it comes to financial aid and pieces of the process inevitably involve the parents. But there's a big conversation about pulling parents away from it um, Mm -hmm. and not being too enmeshed in their their kids' application process. Mm -hmm. Is that different if you have a kid with a learning disability? Like, uh, is there a different standard that we should be applying there versus... Telling parents, hey, let your kid do their own application and do their own essay and all those things?
2: I think that's a great question. It's not what I've been asked before. I mean, I, again, if, if we're talking about sending kids, you know, typically away, and I realize people are going to schools nearby and they're going to commute or they're going to, you know, community colleges. And so the range of things is, is quite wide. But if we're talking about, you know, transition to, I guess, really any kind of school, it doesn't matter. That next step, again, is about is about the independence and about feeling secure that you have the skills to do it. And so, I, you know, I think that parents have a role to play, but as always in this stuff, I think you should be, a, you know, coach rather than director. And I think that, you know, if your if your student really needs a lot of guidance on the way through this process, then that's also a good opportunity to have a conversation about what the step after high school is. Because as you have said, you know, when it comes to a lot of the functions of college, parents really aren't able to help. And they may be coaching from behind and that, you know, that's appropriate. Everybody's on a different developmental trajectory. I'm always hesitant to say don't do this and don't do that because one of the things we do know from the research is that parent support is correlated with student success I think that, you know, the challenge for all of us as parents of typical kids as well as those with disabilities is navigating, like, where is that line?
0: So that is an excellent segue to our, our next set of questions, which has, have to do with once they get to college. You find out as the parent that the college they have chosen has everything they will need to be successful. And mm-hmm. now, how do we as parents <laughs> ensure that they access those resources? Like you've talked about being the coach, but you know, okay, now the kid's not in the house anymore. What do you recommend to our parents who are listening?
2: I think that one, that's a good point. These are great questions. <laughs> you know, you have to encourage them and you can ask some questions. Asking them whether they have registered with disability services is important, but also, you know, Also asking, how are classes going? Are you understanding, you know, what's going on? Have you checked in to see that there's a a tutoring center? So I think, you know, one way to at least introduce the idea is before they're going to college, review the website with them. And at least, you know, if you can get their attention long enough, sit down in front of a computer and click around and show them, look, here's a tutoring center. It's open this many hours a week. You have to make an appointment in advance look, here's the counseling center, you have to do this to get an appointment and making the point to them that we provide all of these services because we expect students to need help If we didn't, we wouldn't have those centers. But, you know, college is not grade 13 is a common phrase in my field. The expectations are higher. A lot of students come, you know, and and experience challenge for the first time academically and, you know, to normalize it as best you can. You know, to say that we wouldn't build these centers and hire these people to help you if we didn't think that it was supposed to be challenging.
1: So when you look at, What you've learned in the role that you play. How has that impacted you as a parent when it came time to look at the college process for your kids?
2: (laughs) Well, I think it has made me, again, think a lot about the graduation requirements because I think, you know, and both of my kids are at specialized schools. One's in an art school, one's in an engineering school. So nobody wanted to follow a mom's footsteps and read literature and write stuff. So. (laughs) I think, you know, really letting students' interests guide that search is really important because in the end, they're the ones who are going and they have to have, you know, it has to have the right vibe for them. They have to, you know, not everybody can visit campuses and I realize that, but if you can, you know, getting that vibe off of, yes, this is really, you know, where I feel like I found my people or, yeah, I like the program, but I don't know, the people here seem a little intense having it be a student-driven person, I think, again, you can sit down and go through the pros and cons of schools, but ask them what they think. Don't tell them what you think, because it's already a hard enough decision. If they want your opinion, (laughs) they will ask for it. (laughs) You know, but teenagers don't always want our opinions. And, you know, I Isn't that so sad? <laughs> oh, oh well, I know. Well, what could we possibly Let's mourn that after,
0: for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I
2: mean, after all the things, I mean, the way we joke about the, the, the shoemakers, you know, children having no <laughs> shoes and... My stu- my children rejecting any tips from me about time management or study skills, nobody has been willing to talk to me about any of that. We so- feel your
0: pain. <laughs> this was so helpful. So we want to give you the question that we always ask at the end of our, our podcast. What is the biggest parenting myth for parents of teens with learning disabilities?
2: Well, I think I've probably already alluded to it a little bit. I, I look, again, knowing where that line in is very challenging, but people will say, well, you you know, you got to give them tough love and you got to kick them out of the nest and you have to, you know, really be hard on them. And I think that again, always your your goal and it it doesn't have to be a tough love is to to try to get them to function independently as much as possible. Coach from behind, give them directions about how to do things, you know, model it, show them first how you do it, then give them instructions as to how they should do it. You know, this is things like making appointments for the doctor, going to get the car inspected, whatever it is, if you, you know, taking public transportation, but then having them practice those skills so that they can feel confident. But all this, sorry, is my backwards way of saying parent support, as I said, is correlated with student success. When students feel supported, they know their parents have their back, they do well. You just want to always be on the side of trying to let them do it themselves and teach them how to do it themselves so that they can, you know, on the times you can't be there, you can't help, they feel confident that they know what to do. Thanks so much for being here with us. This was great advice
1: and thanks for the work you do.
2: Thank you for having me. I enjoy the opportunity.
1: Thanks for joining us for Your
0: Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter,
1: head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Teen with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael DeAloya. Plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You
0: can find more from us at YourTeenMag.com, at EvergreenPodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby.
1: We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education.
2: That's why we started this podcast to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children.
1: On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself.
2: Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together.